Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Read Aloud. And thank you so much for coming out on a crummy day to hear two wonderful readers. I'm sure you'll be happy that you made the effort. Um, we've got two authors reading from their own work today, Jason Gray, who's from University Press, and he's just recently published a book that he's going to share some selections with us, and um, Reverend Susan Ritchie, who's got some of her own essays that she's going to read for us. So I invite you to move forward. It can be a little noisy towards the back, and um, there's plenty of seats up front, so thanks so much for coming. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm Jason Gray. Uh, I'm going to read some poems from my book, Photographing Eden, which uh, was just released from our neighbors to the south at Ohio University Press in Athens. Um, and I do uh, work at, the, uh, at our university press over on West Campus. I've been there for about two years now. And was before that a graduate student in our MFA program. So I've been here around here for a while. Um, and some of these were written in the program. So this is uh, a product of a lot of my time here. All right. <clears throat> a field guide to the dark. Splice together both ends of the same wire. You've tied off an empty circle, a collar for Argos and his leash will be strands of black hair knotted at your wrist. He's as old as you feel, so let him guide you through field and forest, shadows gray, black, and the dark zone phosphorescence, the excited glow slowly fading out. But not until you've followed it inward to a depression, dry as a sealess bed, the place familiar, but vantaged from a distance before, as if a painting. The wind is exhausted and collapses, and you'd hope for stars, but not here, the kingdom of the static on the stoop of a white house gone blue in the dark. Come into the house where anger rests like a dinner plate on the edge of a table, and melancholy is the glass doorknob in and out of every room. Sit down, sit down at the table with its pale yellow cloth. Are those tiny flowers? And let your eyes adjust for now that you've sat, you'll be sitting here for a very long time. How's the sound? Everybody hear me all right? Okay. All right. <clears throat> Running with my father. Gone fat from grief, I took my heavy jar and followed him in the high summer heat for weeks to pare away the weight of loss that hung around me like a planet's rings. I had to lose my gravity. We ran our course until I easily outpaced him, searching for shade in the temporary leaves. Up the hill now, a butterfly of sweat on both our chests. What if his muscles give out in the days ahead? 
One loss recedes into another in the arc of sun. My shadow falls behind. With invisible thread, I'm pulling him to the finish where ticker tape flies through the air as if it had no end. Adam and Eve go to the zoo. It is Adam who stops at the front gate, even though it's open and held back. He quivers as if he's thought of a splinter. Eve is already looking past the iron gates into the plotted wilderness that aches inside of her like a vague deja vu. There is the walrus, there is the fox, there is the panda in his hiding box. Adam is drawn to bears, the bloated mass of brown fur, heavy pawed. He feels this way without dexterity. Yet Adam is in awe of the secret nimbleness their fingers and his contain. He wonders if someone, maybe even Eve, will ask to see how they work. Eve finds herself pressed against the glass of the gorilla, bigger than she, whom she imagined she could fit inside, the swell of child or the ultraviolet blossom of soul. She hopes that maybe the bee will see what is beyond her vision now. Here is the goat, here is the lamb, here is the camel with his head in the sand. Here is Adam in the butterfly enclosure, disappointed by the silence. Eve comes upon him here, and the monarchs come and nest in her hair. She feels as if the wind has visited her, and Adam takes one on his finger and lets Eve give it lift with breath. The nursery at last egg white and full of murmur. The cub is suckling milk from a bottle. Bright new sheep for the grasslands tumble. Adam and Eve are still at last, their breath marks on the glass. This is the world that they were born for, if not born into. Here is the woman, here is the man, here is the earth in the palm of our hand. Letter to the Unconverted. And what would you say if I told you the deer had spoken? Two animals, we were face to face in the wood and stopped each other dead in the last light of day. The cold coming down the hillside, descending as ash that would preserve us like this. Clay jars that could crumble at the lightest push. Here in this moment or the next, that haven of the already dead. Crumbling in a flash of powder, Still too late to catch the spirit escaped, wild and full of unknown sound, virgin language to the eager ear, beautiful unearthly distance unwound. What would you say if I told you this? The light detached like a ghost, expanded before it broke with bark and dirt, and watched the two of us solidify. What would you say? The deer spoke. I spent a little bit of time in Egypt a few years ago. Well, actually, it's getting close to 10 years ago now. (laughs) Yikes. Um, So here's a couple poems from that time. Christmas with Kings. Uh, This takes place in the Valley of the Kings on December 25th. Here where kings have come to rest, we are the day's first tourists. Sun just a white glare. Road men perch in the rocks above the valley. Watchdogs are worse. 
as we enter an open tomb. Cold walls have lost most of their paint, the flecks of sky flaked off now mingling with the sand. The ceiling's yellow stars in the blue sky almost nothing, as if obscured by smoke. The way to heaven was through the earth the kings all knew, surrounded by gifts, wrapped in cloth, wanting safe passage in their human way from the old dispensation into the new. Christ knew it too, would wrap himself in skin and hide himself inside himself, and only after burial could he be raised. The sun through the shaft is seen the whole way back. I'm hoping for others when we reach the top, expecting terror from the watchers, thieves, shepherds, angels, depending on the story this turns out to be. They've disappeared, which leaves us in doubt and sleeved in dust from kicked-up wind. More tourists move in and out of open tombs. Whatever made these gods human is over the peaks and untraceable, yet leaves its mark indelibly with us, messenger, message, folding into one. Like the dust we are on a windstorm lifted, that which is sky is now dirt, and the dirt sky. Uh, this takes place just across the river at Luxor Temple. The Little Sphinx. With his semi-automatic machine gun, he waves me over. He's a tourist policeman, but it's still a gun. He leads me through an arch around a corner to some antechamber guidebooks don't remember. Arabic to me is a lizard that darts behind the rocks. I'll never catch it. And his English is a mix of McDonald's and Miami Vice. He points to a statue of a sphinx the size of a German shepherd, though it's possible I'm being told to get down on my knees. But really, he is playing the tour guide and wants me to shoot it with my camera, and so I do. He smiles. I hand him five Egyptian pounds back sheesh. He hands me back my life. How American to be afraid, to make him someone who would kill. Or maybe it's only human to think we are our own most impending danger, we who know the desert mirage and still walk toward it. I wonder if the Sphinx will bark its question and make me answer for myself. What are two legs at noon good for if not to go somewhere else and know that somewhere else? Though this keeper of an alleyway was tossed in a corner of a ruined temple, it's still a kind of crossroads here, two languages looking for a way to pass each other without first reaching for a sword. We have done little to quell the Sphinx's anger. He must still want to crack his stone encasement, stretch his jaw, and tear us savagely. See the punctures of his canines? How like bullet holes, both empty and intrusive. I always forget to uh, mention before I read that poem that the word bakshish, which may not be familiar, is an Arabic word. It basically means, well, in some contexts, bribe or tip, you know, for a service performed. I don't know if anybody's watching or has watched that Planet Earth series on the Discovery Channel, but I just watched one of the episodes yesterday, The Mountains One, and they had, for the first time, caught a snow leopard on video, which they never caught before, and it's magnificent. It's actually chasing down some kind of deer, and it's pretty amazing. Um, 
I really like snow leopards. I had written this poem about them a long time ago, so here we go. The Snow Leopard in the Metro Toronto Zoo for Paul Strong. He pads on grassy banks behind a fence with measured paces slow and tense. Beyond his cage, his thoughts are sharp and white. He lives a compelled anchorite. A solid ghost gone blind with all the green. He waits and waits to be unseen. The snow globe of drowning bears. A shelf of ice breaks off in summers to the south. Bread torn from a loaf and dipped into the mouth. The children drowned in the kelp off the Kentucky coast. Blessed are those born with jeans for webbed toes. At harvest time in Canada, heft the pomegranates into baskets like the whole world he's got in his hands. Shake it, please, and send us scattering. Bear. Along the trail, I drag my shadow behind me as the sun burns into my forehead. The woods of Virginia do not move, except everywhere, slowly. Ahead, the stillness is the same. Even the trees are bending with the weight of air. I've walked for miles and yet seen nothing. No scurryings, only wind howls at cliff edges, where stunted pines like suicides look down. Down into the valley, the light dulls. What's left luminous is the moss in shadow. And in the river basin, among the deadfall, scruff sparks in the brush and out comes a bear running into the woods. I stand amazed, like darkness exposed to sunlight, an empty bowl to water. The footbeats leave their echoes. Sciomancy. Sciomancy means uh, divination by shadows. It is the shape you make, the kind of sun you don't let fall that tells me what I need. You see, the ground is scorched with emptiness. You will be subject to the wind. The earth will never have you. You lingered here. Your lover will leave you once you are nothing but apple core. It's gotten so no longer do I need the shadow. I can read its former place as if you sat in grass and left just moments ago. You want to know the future, tell the past. It is the trace you left on time, the way shadows are our temporary stain on the world. See how even in your sways, your slightest twitches, you have heralded the long road of all your missed decisions, the loss of all your better possibilities. It is a bottomless box. Stare if you like. But you, who think that God has fled your side, bent double as you are, won't find him in the dirt. This I know more about than most. You cannot find the absent in the absent. The Nature Trail. There's an epigraph here. 
The Eden Historic Park welcomes all visitors between hours of 7 a.m. and dusk. There is convenient parking located next to the park headquarters and gift shop. Our ranger angel is always on duty at the gate to answer any questions you might have and to point out a few sights to see along the way. Catch him on the right day, and he might show you his antique sword. Starting from the gate, there's a slight upgrade where you'll encounter one, a dead fig tree, the branches splayed in a gesture of combustion. Further on, the path winds past a field of scree and down to the spring, too, from which are drawn four rivers, Gihon, Tigris, and Euphrates, and dry Pishon. Too much was taken quenching oil fires. Too late our minds divine what fate sees in its telescopic view. The waiting choirs of trees project to three, the naming stone, where Adam's choirs were filled with every appellation he fired in the kiln of his brain, the animals lined and blessed with his decree. The trail leads upwards to the highest rise in the park. See how the path to a circular grove, four, where the sunlight falls slantwise on two trees, five, the tree of life, which wove its roots with six, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but strove somehow to separate, and so it grew at an angle, and for years and for years the wood has leaned away as if its sister's taboo were a lit match. As you pass by the pair, notice the two burns, seven, on the trunk, cuneiform inscriptions older than the Sumer dialect. Deciphering the swarm of wedge-shaped letters has been difficult. We think the triform marks are those for A plus E. However, in academic circles, the tumult that romantic notion sparked began to sever several ties between the park and the field of linguists, clever though it may be. The trail continues down. Through here the fallen leaves will yield to solid ground as you, lost in the gown of light that shifts the clerestory, a new meltdown of body into fire, descend and keep descending. For this trail, like the story, does not loop back but reaches to a deep where light is sweeter for reaching further in, where you will steep until your body has blended into light, burns forever, and is not burned. I'm going to read one more, and it's a fun one to end with. The End, Mizzenhead, County Cork. Where Ireland loses to Atlantic waves, a finger in the water. Past each sheep-infested curve, we've come to see the end. Far enough, the Romans never made this coast. Past Crookhaven, Cork, the Port of Cove, I feel the flag pin push into the map. My father's camera rings his neck. Gray hair like sea foam on his head, yellow and brown in mine like seaweed. No one else is there when we arrive, not even lighthouse keepers. Late winter clouds are nestling in the mud. After a gate, we need to hurdle. Rust crumbles off in our hands and turns to powder. There is one bridge out to the lighthouse rock. I follow my father in until the fog makes of distinction absolutely nothing. Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming, everybody. to uh, two essays from a collection in process. The first is called But Enough About Me. 
I've been waking up at night thinking about one of those frightening studies about the concentration of germs in public places. I made a sacred vow to myself to never, ever read these, but this one caught my eye. It was about the filthiest stall in public restrooms. Almost without fail, it is the one a third of the way into the room that is the most used and apparently, therefore, the most germ-riddled. It was the psychology behind this finding, not the microbiology, that really caught my attention. Apparently, most of us walk into the bathroom and decide not to use the first stall because we think that is what most people will do. So we pick a stall a third of the way back, imagining in this way that we are outsmarting everyone. Regrettably, it proves to be exactly this delusion about our uniqueness that makes us exactly like everybody else. The psychologist Daniel Gilbert has recently published a summary of the research on human happiness that describes the same phenomenon. He was specifically interested in whether or not we know what makes us happy. The short answer is we do not. For one, we tell ourselves stories about what makes us happy. We think that we are happier at home than on the job, but if you ask people at random intervals throughout the day to record their mood, without fail, people report the highest levels of happiness when they are at work. But he also explained the complications that arise when we make decisions about what will make us happy in the future. If I clean the house now, then I will be happy later when I am sitting on the couch, relaxing and admiring my clean home, glad to have gotten that chore out of the way. But the problem is it never works out like that. My future self is actually an ungrateful bitch who doesn't remember at all the sacrifices that I have made for her. And because she and I have such a poor relationship, more often than not, I will be wrong about what will please her. I hate her, this selfish future version of me, but I can't stop trying to serve her. But for all this negativity, Dr. Gilbert does offer one surefire way of determining whether or not a decision we make now will make us happy. All we have to do is talk to someone who has made a similar decision in the past and ask them how they feel. Chances are we will feel the same way. But wait, there's a hitch. Dr. Gilbert says that even if we have this conversation, we will not accept that our feelings will be the same as our friends. Why? Because again, we are terminally unique. Our feelings and our reactions to the world will be essentially different from those of other people. Perhaps at this point you're thinking, but wait, I don't do that. I don't use the stall a third of the way back in the restroom. I really do listen to people about their feelings, about their choices. But alas, even if this is true, you still make my point for me. You can't be so unique that you don't suffer from thinking yourself unique. We do believe this. We believe that our inherent human worth and dignity is tied up with what makes us individuals. We believe this so strongly, it is one of the first lessons that we pass on to our children. How many times do we tell children the same story, the one that follows the general pattern of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? You know this. 
There's some young animal who is lonely and miserable because he is not included in his peer group because of some distinctive quality. For Rudolph, his red nose, that makes him stand out as odd. Then after a series of improbable and highly contrived events, in the case of the Rudolph story, what was apparently Santa's first experience dealing with winter weather, after this complicated event, the identifying characteristic that was once ridiculed now takes on the power to save the entire community. The young animal is now accepted and beloved by all, not in spite of, but for his oddity. I've encountered the same story about little girls, about little boys, about fruits, and my favorite about a penguin named Tacky, who is not accepted by his peers because of his habit of saying strange things loudly until, wait, one day, men hunting the colony turn away because they meet Tacky and decide that he's so strange he's not a penguin, and therefore there were no penguins around to hunt. What if none of this is true? What if it's not our differences that give us a place in the human family? What if it's everything we have in common? I studied a lot of graduate, excuse me, folklore in graduate school, and this not being a field that readily lends itself to actual employment, many of us rejoiced when one of our number was hired by an insurance company, an actual corporation. He was hired to help this insurance company assess which people submitting claims for losses might actually be lying. And it turns out that the folklorists did know what the insurance adjusters did not know, because the folklorists knew how people tell stories. The insurance adjuster had assumed that true claims about losses would be highly detailed, that they would be specific to the particular circumstances of the individuals filing the claims. That was not true. Folklorists knew the opposite to be true, that if people suffer a difficult loss, there is only one story and only one story to tell. I've lost everything, but I still have the people I love. I have the, the company of the people I love. That's plenty enough about me. Second essay is called Everything Spins. Every piece of matter spins through time, from the electron to the largest galaxy and everything within it. Even black holes spin, leaving behind them worlds of distorted time and space. And spin, so do we, through the seasons, through our lives, through our minds. In my dreams, images from the past and present arise and mingle and become one single spinning top, twirling so fast the edges blur and become one. When I wake in the morning, I spin again, caught between consciousnesses. As my day starts, the spinning accelerates. As I move between separate and even conflicting demands on my time, my attention, and my care. Why do I hate the spinning? In Hinduism, the world is both created and destroyed through the spinning dance of Shiva. With each twirl of his dance, the known world is annihilated and yet also recreated anew in every minute. But within the context of our American culture, spinning is a bad thing. We spin our wheels, 
we tend to think of spinning, which could be described as a kind of angular momentum, as a lack of momentum. Because here, the only momentum that matters is forwards. Here, we imagine that creation is not something that happens every second and which is infinitely renewable, but something that happened once, a long time ago, and will someday come to an end. In this way, we have made an enemy of time itself. The New York Times did an interesting survey of self-help books a few years ago where the reviewer had noticed that almost all the authors publishing books around the time of the new year suggested that if we were going to be successful and happy, we needed to change our relationship to time. The problem was they were equally divided between those who felt we have to speed up and those who feel that we have to slow down. The first set of authors was convinced that if we don't slow down, we will kill ourselves, lose touch with our families, and forget who we really are. The second set was convinced there are plenty more seconds to the day that could and should be sacrificed to the gods of productivity. Just consider the titles. On one hand, in praise of slowness, no more stress for good, and the lazy way to succeed, how to accomplish everything while doing nothing. Really, these are real titles. The author of the book, in praise of slowness, suggests that we need to take off our watches and leave home anything that beeps. He urges his readers to take up a slow hobby like gardening or knitting, and he suggests that each and every day we strive harder and harder to do less and less. Any irony about striving really hard not to work so hard is completely lost on this author. But on the other hand, getting things done quickly, zen in a hurry, and stress for success. The author of Stress for Success is my favorite. He asserts that people who stop to smell the roses have a pathologically low sense of self-esteem the only suitable expression of self-esteem being, of course, ambition. This author recommends that each morning you make a very long list of what you plan to achieve that day, and if at any point you become distracted from these goals, you say to yourself in as harsh a manner as possible, back to work, stupid, back to work, stupid, back to work, stupid. I haven't read such unattractive self-help tip since Anthony Robbins suggested that if you want to diminish your appetite and lose weight, go to a restaurant, order a large meal, and when it arrives, stand up and scream as loudly as possible, I am a fat pig. <laughs> Clearly, we have a problem. What if we could stop treating time as an enemy that we have to manipulate? And where did it come from, this idea that we should control time? In my neighborhood, the one reminder of the passage of time comes from the bells of the local church, which chime every quarter of an hour. Whether I hear them or not depends on the weather, and of course, whether or not I'm listening. I notice them most at 6 o'clock at night when they play a short hymn, although now I'm bothered because they haven't been adjusted for daylight savings time, and now the hymn plays at five. The tone of the bells is so ancient, it's easy to forget how bizarre this arrangement is. To have time marked by bells, let alone church bells, 
Long gone are the days when life was organized around a village green, and that green was anchored by a church. And of course, the original purpose of church bells was never to signal time. Originally, church bells would have been run only to assemble the faithful or to gather the community in times of extreme crisis or celebration. Church bells became associated with the telling of time with the rise of monasticism, when the bells would ring out the canonical hours of prayer, matins, lauds, vestibules, even song, loudly enough so that even lay people not residing in cloister could be reminded of an opportunity to structure their day in some other way than according to secular time, where time would be measured out only by chores to be accomplished. In England, this practice changed with Henry VIII as part of his ruthless quest to destroy the authority base of the church that would not grant him a divorce. It is well known that Henry ordered the monasteries closed and that he seized all of their assets. It's less well known that he ordered that all churches ring their bells, now not for prayer, but in order to mark secular hours that would be dictated by the palace bells. It amazes me that churches still proudly ring out the hours when doing so is the very mark of defeat for their hope for a different kind of time, a time that would encourage people to hold themselves in relationship to something larger than the next task to be performed. We have lost this humane understanding of time. We have lost a sense of how various time is, how it can and how it should change. Of course, any household with more than one clock or a time-telling device knows something about time as an artificial construct. I'm never sure what time it is in my own home. As far as I can tell, my house includes six different time zones, depending on which clock you are near and, of course, which family member controls that clock. I am of a rationalist frame of mind, so I like to set my clocks right on the empirically correct hour and minute. I really love those atomic clocks that use satellites to call up the mother atomic clock in Boulder for the perfect time. My partner, though, has a more fully developed sense of responsibility than I do. So she sets all of her clocks early, unless she ever be late. The consequence of this is if we are to coordinate anything as a family, we have to indicate by which time zone we will judge the hour. Is that 7 o'clock by the clock with the hen on it? Or is that 7 o'clock by the alarm in the bedroom? Or is that the cable box? And what would we ever do if the cable box and the cell phone disagreed? Of course, our ability to determine the time ourselves has grown far more sophisticated than it was in the age of King Henry, when time was what the palace said it was. And yet we are far from our perfect knowledge. Clocks inside of the home became a status symbol among the rich in the 16th century. And yet, and I love this, the pendulum had not been applied to this purpose, and so clocks would ring more or less randomly. We may think we've left this world behind, and yet have we? I was upset recently to learn that even the atomic clock, which measures the oscillations of atoms instead of a pendulum, gets off of what scientists call Earth time. Did you know that an extra second was added into 1998? An extra second was added to make up for the difference between atomic time and Earth time. This really feels like a cheat to me. 
like putting a sham under a cabinet to hide an uneven floor. How did they do it? But of course, humanity's most horrific manipulation of time has to be daylight savings time. Daylight savings time was first advocated by Benjamin Franklin in 1774, who claimed that if we altered the time with the seasons, we would save money on candle wax. First adopted during World War I and then again in 1966, the sad conclusion has been that changing the time on the clock doesn't save any energy at all because, well, few Americans, even in the 18th century, felt like their only choice past sunset was sleep. The confusion about the alleged benefits and nature of daylight savings time, however, lives on. I once heard a call-in show where someone explained that we have to keep daylight savings time because God knows the plants need another hour of sunlight. Even the author of a book on daylight savings time has missed the point, saying in an interview on the radio that he thinks it's nice to enjoy not a later but a longer day. Recent studies have suggested that actually the enduring reason for daylight savings time is shopping. People are much more likely to shop on their way home from work if it's still light out than otherwise. Shopping and golf courses. Golf courses get more business earlier in the season if people can sneak in around after work. But what if none of this is true? What if time is not the enemy? What if, as mortals, time is our only gift? Whatever we might think about the existence or not of anything we might call a soul, to be born is to be roughly inserted into a world of time. And when we die, we return to something beyond time. When the whirling dervishes of the gentle and poetic Sufi movement of Islam spin, they hold one hand up to the heavens, even as they delicately point the other to the ground. They do not choose between slow or fast, eternal time or earthly. They become a center beyond time, a pole that makes it unnecessary to choose sides of a paradox. Fast, slow, it is all the same if time is received openly and without condition, as the gift that it is. Thank you very much. Thank you, Susan, and thank you so much, Jason, for sharing your writing with us. Thanks to all of you for coming out. We're here every week from 3 to 4. And um, there's bookmarks on the back table if you'd like to look at our website and see what's coming up. Next week we have a fellow from the College of Education and Human Ecology, and he's done this project for the last few years called the Story Box Project, um, inviting people to share their stories, personal, whatever sort of stories they have. He's sent this box all around the world, collecting stories, and the people who have hosted the box are reading the stories that others have wrote. So he's going to be bringing the box next week and reading from that. So it should be a lot of fun if you're available. Come on out and join us. Thank you so much. Thank you.